0: Previously, Unmissed Fortune.
1: I spent a long time lurking on various treasure websites, reading everybody's solutions that were there. I gotta admit, I was amazed at how bad they all were. Uh,
0: Shakespeare said everybody has their entrances and in their exits, and they play their part and they're gone. Andy Warhol said everybody has their 15 minutes. I mean, those idiosyncrasies of our nature have been there since the very beginning
2: and he put out those scrapbooks knowing they would cause frenzies and people would go crazy and yet he still did it. You don't think I'm crazy for being here, right? Um not oh, the no, uh Come on, now the Oh, <laughs>
0: come on, man. <laughs> um is there a is there a time that you consider to be like the lowest? Yeah. A few months after Daryl and I went our separate ways, my article about him was published in the September 2015 issue of Outside Magazine. And it took off. It racked up page views and shares and eventually won an award. Daryl became a cautionary story. I got a plaque in the mail. Over the next couple of years, we lost touch. I stopped going on treasure hunts and moved on to the next thing because that's what you do when a story wraps up. Outside sent me all over the world with a bigger expense budget, doing the kind of reporting I'd always wanted to do. Thanks, Daryl. Every once in a while, Daryl would email me a photo of where he was looking, but there usually wasn't much context. He seemed okay. But while I was off living out my professional dreams, Daryl was not okay. He was as deep underwater on the treasure hunt as someone can go. When his contract job ended, he didn't even look for another one. He got unemployment, but not enough to both pay his rent and go look for the treasure. Of course, he chose treasure. So eventually, he had to move all of his stuff into a storage unit and himself into his car for the second time since he'd started hunting.
2: It didn't matter. It didn't matter that I lost everything. I just got to make this work.
0: Then he got behind on the payments for the storage unit and the car, and lost both of those, too.
2: By this time, what little I had to my name, I could put in two duffel bags.
0: Then he lost the duffel bags.
2: On this particular trip, a buddy said, Hey, I know you don't have a car, I know you want to go. Here, you can take my truck. And what I owned, like I said, was in two or three bags. All I owned, and uh, again, I had a a friend that was going to go last minute. He bailed, uh, and the friend that let me borrow the truck said, "Hey, I know a guy that'll go with you." Well, we wound up stopping at a a rest stop. Um, I grabbed my phone, I went in, I took a piss, I came out, and him and the truck were gone.
0: It was cold. Darryl was in a t-shirt and had nothing but his phone in the middle of Montana. But that wasn't the low point. And I was freaking out. And then two
2: country mofos drive up. And uh, I didn't even approach them. They approached me. He goes, man, what's wrong? It seemed like something's wrong. I said, yeah, this dude stole, my, stole this truck. Took everything. And so... Um, one of them was using the bathroom and the other one was just smoking and talking. And he goes, well, we're driving um, to Spokane and then we're driving back to Montana. Perfect.
0: Daryl rode with them to Spokane, then back to Bozeman, just outside the park. Took about 13 hours.
2: So these guys are literally drinking beers and throwing the empty cans out the window, singing, um, you know, every Leonard Skinner song you could think of. <laughs> But all I could think about was, I don't give a freak. Um, They're going back to Bozeman, I can do more searching. I'll be rich. We pull into home and I wasn't surprised. It was a, um, a single wide trailer that leaned probably 30 degrees to the right. It was dirty, there were flies everywhere. One had a girlfriend, one was married. As soon as they got in, both the women were screaming at them because they took too long. Who was this guy? Um, um, it was just a madhouse. Kids were screaming, it was just horrible. Well, I was broke, you know, an unemployment check wasn't coming for another week. And here I wound up staying with these guys for three weeks just because I was close to where I thought the treasure was. And no matter how bad it was, no matter how many flies I killed, I kept thinking, man, I'm only 40 miles from the park. How great is this? I'm gonna find it.
0: They drove him to the park once or twice a week. On the off days, he hung out, watched TV. At night, like clockwork, one or both of the couples would start fighting, and Daryl would try to stay out of the way, trying to think about the chaos and dysfunction of his own childhood. But that still wasn't the low point.
2: I would just go outside and sit out there, and they would fight themselves to sleep. Uh, but I remember this particular night, she brought me into it. He had not told her that I'd given him 20 or $30. Um, she found out brought me into it, so I was like, oh, hell.
0: Before he could get pulled any further into the fight, Daryl took off. He just started walking. When Daryl started pursuing the Fenn treasure, he'd lived in a nice house. But soon he was in an apartment. Then he lived in his car. Then a friend's apartment. Then back to his car. Then he spent some time couch surfing with friends, and then couchsurfing with strangers in a trailer in Montana. It was a long slide downhill, but he'd always at least been inside, and now he wasn't. I wasn't going back to where they were, and so um, I just started walking in and um, saw a bridge and just camped out. He'd finally given everything to the treasure hunt. That was the low point. This is Mist Fortune, an Apple original podcast from High Five Content, 30 Minutes West, and Outside Magazine. I'm Peter Frickright. I'm hearing you. Um, And how am I coming through?
1: Sound great. I mean, should I be putting on headphones and put you on there? Is that the more professional way to do this? That is the more
0: professional way to do this. Around the same time that I walked away from Daryl and stopped paying attention to the Fen treasure hunt, journalist Dan Barbarisi picked up the story.
1: Okay, I have headphones in. Apologies for it being amateur hour over here. No worries. This sounds,
0: this sounds good. No one's going to okay, know good. amateur <laughs> at all. Dan is a senior editor at the sports website The Athletic and wrote a book about the Fenn treasure, Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death, and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. The book takes kind of a 30,000-foot view of the treasure hunt, but also covers the time Dan spent searching himself in New Mexico and Wyoming, plus his hunting trips with other people, and regular interviews with Forrest Fenn, starting in June of 2017.
1: You know, in terms of, from a storyteller's point of view, um, you know, a matter of fortune, Um, things started happening very soon after that. And so there was suddenly a whole lot to write about in a very quick uh, hurry.
0: I wanted to talk to Dan because around the time Dan started interviewing him, Forrest Fenn pretty much stopped talking to other journalists. He withdrew. And around this same time, the treasure hunt began to spiral out of control. In January 2016, a man named Randy Bilyeu disappeared while hunting for the Fenn treasure in New Mexico. His body was found near the Rio Grande six months later, that July.
1: And that is a major event, but I don't think of it as a turning point. Um, But it sets the stage for what definitely was, I think, which is then in that June-July period of 2017, when um, in the space of a month, uh, three searchers died.
0: The next three deaths were Paris Wallace, a pastor from Utah who also disappeared while searching along the Rio Grande, then Eric Ashby, who washed down the Arkansas River in Colorado, and died. Around that same time, Jeff Murphy died from a fall in Yellowstone. But no one knew he was a Fenn treasure hunter until a TV station made a public records request.
1: And there came, you know, a lot of calls from authority figures, governmental figures or the state police in New Mexico for Fenn to end the hunt. And it was a real legitimate open question for a time. State police chief Pica is calling on Forrest Fenn to end his treasure hunt before someone else dies looking for it. You know, this thing went from. I think universally looked at as a sort of lark, you know, a happy little public good to, oh, no, this could be actually a real problem. This could be a danger to the public. Maybe we shouldn't let this thing continue. Maybe this needs to be
0: stopped. In early 2020, a fifth person died. Michael Sexton was using a snowmobile to look for the treasure with a friend in Dinosaur National Monument. They were out four days in the snow. Only the friend survived. Fen had told me that it wasn't his job to babysit treasure hunters. He'd made it clear the treasure wasn't in a dangerous location, so this was on them. That was before people actually started dying. Did he ever change his tune?
1: His reactions were complicated. You know, he was he was put in a difficult position in some ways because, you know, he was both the creator of this hunt and the defender of it. You know, when people started coming at him and saying, you know, is this thing good? You should end this hunt. This thing is a bad thing. You know, he suddenly was put in the position of having to say, no, I believe this hunt is a good thing. And I think he absolutely believed it was a force for good, even though people died doing it. And I think he was tremendously, you know, saddened by the deaths. At the same time, he was also speaking out and saying things that were essentially to the effect of, you know, these things happen People die all the time. You know, if you go outside, you run the risk, which can seem a little callous. Um, you know, I don't think he was callous about their deaths, but I do think as much as he also cared, as he, much as he cared about the people who died doing this thing he created, he also cared about his hunt and he cared about it continuing. And he wanted it to continue.
0: But the deaths were just the most tragic headline grabbing part of a series of tragedies and poor decisions that around this time started to become associated with the hunt. Stuff that makes Daryl's back-to-back rescue and arrest look almost restrained. Madalena Taylor, from Lynchburg, Virginia, thought the treasure was near Cody, Wyoming, and the county search and rescue team had to look for her three times in four years. Then there was Robert Miller, who thought the treasure was at Fenn's house and was arrested on the property.
1: Police video shows officers catching up with a Pennsylvania man after they say he broke into a Santa Fe author's home to look for a hidden treasure
3: chest. I thought the poem directed me into here. I thought it said... Poem? Yeah, the the treasure map, the treasure hunt, you know? I mean, here's the thing, man, that's, that's a burglary, dude.
0: David Christensen thought the treasure was at the bottom of Yellowstone Canyon and tried to rappel down to it from a scenic overlook but he brought a 300-foot rope to an 800-foot canyon. It took six hours to complete the rescue. There were times where they would fall headfirst into the drifts while we're still pulling up. Roderick Craythorn thought the treasure was in the cemetery of Fort Yellowstone, a site near the park listed on the National Register of Historic Places. He dug 17 holes looking for it and damaged a grave.
1: Craythorne pleaded not guilty to charges of excavating or trafficking in archaeological resources and injury to U.S.
0: property. Then there was Scott Conway.
3: Unfortunately, the feds are blocking my quest.
0: He thought the treasure was in New Mexico's Heron Lake State Park and was arrested with friends after having been discovered digging a hole 14 feet deep. He'd been digging holes like it in the park for five years.
3: It's hard to know where the chest is and then have people die. This has been bugging me pretty hard for the last five years because you know I'm trying to dig this up and people were dying in the process and it played on me emotionally. What Conway's expressing here
0: on his YouTube channel is an idea that started to pop up once people started dying. That the hunt had run its course and needed to end. But the only way to end it was to find the treasure. And it's a seductive idea. It turns treasure hunting into a moral duty. Find the treasure, and you're not just rich, you've potentially saved some lives.
3: Uh, To the point where I even called the state police to turn myself in uh, and let them know where it was at, just so that we put an end to it so people would quit dying. And then, they didn't take me serious. They never returned my phone calls. They just blew me off. Uh, so you know, I had no choice but to finish the dig to try to end this whole thing.
0: Well, in terms of your in terms of studying the phenomenon, um, at, at what point did the hunt sort of crest into sociological significance?
3: Uh, I think from the start. I think this is the greatest uh, uh, treasure hunt in American history. This is Professor Alan King. The richness of this chase and the way that Forrest designed it and implemented it, I just don't see how it can be rivaled. Alan's a professor of
0: psychology at the University of North Dakota. And after seeing Fenn on TV in 2015, he started looking for the treasure himself searching a spot in Wyoming's Bighorn Mountains. But while some say the key to solving the poem is understanding Fenn's own mind, the only advantage Alan's psychology training gave him was being able to read the social cues of when people were done listening to him talk about it. So eventually, he set out to answer a different, more basic question. How many Fenn treasure hunters were there?
3: I was curious about the size, like everyone else, and uh, the, the number that got fixed in the latter stages, was 350,000.
0: So 350,000 came from Fenn. But other analyses of things like YouTube numbers and blog traffic on fen related websites had shown an engaged audience of thirty-five to 50,000 people. So which was it? To find out, Alan put together an online survey that sampled random people. There are whole websites set up to do this for researchers. So he asked 1,200 people whether they had heard of Forest Fat, then a couple of questions to gauge how much they knew about the hunt. He wanted to know whether they were active searchers or had maybe just read an article.
3: I figured I'd have the 1,200 respondents, and no one would have heard about it. And so the numbers that came back were actually uh, quite uh, surprising to me. And so what you can do is you can extrapolate from that sample What he found
0: was that 350,000 active searchers was pretty close.
3: My my number came to 433,000. It's usually reported as 350, that's fine with me, but I actually, you know, I was surprised. Along with this basic
0: information, Alan also asks more interesting questions. And his study is the only peer-reviewed research paper on the Fenn treasure hunt. What he wanted to know was, who were these people? What's the treasure hunting demographic? One early thought was that perhaps searchers had a tendency towards trauma in childhood. Maybe a lot of them were running from something, like Daryl.
3: But by and large, they weren't. That was the simple motive is that maybe certain people have needs for this sort of escapism. And there was no relationship. I mean, there was no higher, the uh, adversity, adverse childhood experiences of the chase community was no higher uh, or lower. Than it was for the rest of the population.
0: The second theory Ellen brought to the research had to do with a set of personality traits called hypomania
3: energy, uh, euphoria, capacity for euphoria, capacity to be, you know, for the thrill of the chase, optimism, a sense of humor, confidence. Not a lot of need for sleep, being able to work really hard.
0: Alan thought people who set this kind of goal might take it on because they possessed the qualities it took to be successful. Maybe it played to their strengths.
3: I found that the group as a whole, the sample as a whole, were no more prone to hypomania than the general population. But those in the chase who were hypomanic, myself probably included, by the way, uh, would be, uh, had, had a, a much greater time. They had more fun. They were much more positive about the experience. And that makes sense to me as well. And so, although we didn't have, you know, the group wasn't by nature more hypomanic than the, the members of the general population. Those of us who were inclined that way, uh, certainly got more out of the chase than those who were hostile and cynical and paranoid by nature, and angry by nature, they dropped out very fast.
0: So the typical treasure hunter wasn't particularly likely to have a history of trauma, and people with hypomanic tendencies did tend to thrive in the hunt, but they didn't make up a higher proportion of the community than the general population. Daryl's history wasn't representative of most searchers. Most searchers, Alan's research showed, were on the whole pretty white, pretty well-educated, and pretty affluent— So despite Fenn's intent to make the hunt for every redneck with a pickup truck who lost his job, the people who stuck around were, by and large, the folks who could afford to go looking for it. And None of that really helps us understand the deaths and arrests and the spiraling out of control. But there was one personality factor Alan found that does help explain what happened.
3: The one difference that was very substantial was risk-taking. And this sample was, uh, the men were much, much higher as risk-takers than the general population.
0: In another sample he surveyed, this one of committed searchers, about 20% of the men were in the 93rd percentile for risk tolerance. And three-quarters of the Fenn treasure hunters were male. So assuming the other numbers are correct, Fenn inadvertently unleashed about 64,000 of the most risky people in America on the forests rivers and canyons of the Rocky Mountains and only 5 people died
3: now my study is look it's a small sample i think it generalizes to the real hardcore members of the community the most committed the most avid searchers but the the variables i looked at are you know uh, you know only certain inferences can be made
0: Alan's data is a sketch of the treasure hunt, not a detailed portrait. But what the sketch shows us is that the quintessential Forest Fen treasure hunter, white, rich, risk tolerant, has a lot in common with Forest Fen. If his goal in all this was to perpetuate his worldview, bring together a tribe of seekers, and promote the thrill of discovery, for better or worse, he succeeded.
3: I think he's hypomanic. (laughs) <laughs> i think he fits into that sort of hypomanic uh, profile i was describing in a positive way you know i think he uh some might say he went off the deep end with the chase but you know i feel like uh, i i owe him for what he you know the adventure later in my life you know five-year adventure the adventure of my life that he gave me
0: In a lot of ways, Alan King had the experience Fenn envisioned for most hunters. He was excited about the hunt, but not obsessed. He spent money on search trips, but not his last dollar. He stayed out of trouble. The people who took it too far were outliers. But the hunt got big enough that there were a lot of outliers. And eventually, they started getting not just to Fenn, but to his family.
2: The Santa Fe Police Department issued an arrest warrant for Francisco Paco Chavez. He's locked up at a Nevada detention center right now. They say he may have violated a restraining order.
0: Paco Chavez was in so deep, he thought the treasure was Forrest Fenn's granddaughter. He stalked the family for years.
2: He is not allowed to go near the home of Forrest Fenn, but police say a guy who looks like him showed up this weekend. Chavez has admitted to stalking both Fenn's daughter and granddaughter.
1: Again, I don't think he cared about himself. I really do think he felt like he, he had opened himself up to this. But when, when things started to go around about his family, I think that that was very difficult for him and for them. Um, and, I, you know, he certainly didn't expect this when it started. He never thought this was all going to go in this direction. You know, I firmly believe that he never thought this would get a tenth as big as it did.
0: It had reached the point where people were treasure hunting just to end the treasure hunt. And while the official request to call it off mostly went away, there was a lingering feeling that Fenn had lost control of this thing he'd created. Tell me about the decision you made to, to, to sort of walk away from the hunt. Like, what, what changed? Well, I mean, a lot of things in
1: the hunt changed. You know, at that time, it was... Um, you know things were just they felt like they were getting a little weirder you know they were getting a little crazier there seemed to be more public incidents more the kind of things we talked about before you know with the home invasions and the, the guy digging the hole the gigantic hole out in New Mexico and you know more people getting arrested doing it Um, it just started to kind of be building on itself Um, and you know the more I came to think about like finding the treasure chest it came to seem like oh god I don't want to do that like you know, you put yourself... You put a target on your back. You know, Fenn had a target on his back. He really did. And he had put that there himself, and he accepted that. And I know, you know, as we discussed, you know, he didn't... I don't think wanted that on his family's back, but, you know, they were in it at that point. Um, but, you know, what happens if you find the treasure? Then the target transfers from him to you. You know, and there's no guarantee that people won't resent you for it, won't be angry at you for it, won't believe that something, you know, ill was done, something nefarious was done to gain access to that and you know like at a certain point it came to me i was like i want no part of finding this thing ever you know i don't i don't need that in my life at all so you know once it started to be like there are a lot of there are a lot of elements in this that i do not think are that pretty um i'm gonna i'm gonna probably take my exit from this
0: so dan decided to get out but it wasn't so simple for everyone some people had given the hunt so much of themselves that their very identity was wrapped up in whether or not they could solve some clues and find a box. Some people were still searching not to end the hunt and save some lives, but to save themselves. You went back to Seattle. How did you get back on your feet? So the guy who
2: let me the truck, um, I made it back to his house, um, and I stayed a few few nights there, and
0: you know I just remember saying, "God, man, I need some help here." After sleeping under that bridge, Daryl found his way back to Seattle, and moved in with a friend who suggested that he scale back the treasure hunt. So he took six months off, then moved to Dallas, not to party, but to work. He eventually landed a minimum wage job stocking shelves and running the cash register in a thrift store.
2: I wasn't there very long, maybe a month, and um, I got a call f- um, from a company in uh, Maryland, Lockheed Martin, and, um, you know, here the last few years, I flipped under a bridge, and I was homeless, I had nothing, and here they're offering me, you know, six-figure salary, um, and I had to be in Maryland in 13 days.
0: Remember, when he's not throwing it all away on a treasure hunt, Daryl recruits engineers for a living. And he's really good at it. How did they find you?
2: Um, good question. Um, and here's the thing, too. The My boss had read my resume wrong. She thought I was already in the Maryland area. And... You know, my first week there, she said, hey, had I known that you were in Texas, you would have not gotten a call from me. Do you know that? (laughs) So I was really lucky, Uh, truly lucky. But, you know, I got in there and um, work was my focus, not the treasure hunt, and I did a good job and uh, things
0: got better. From Maryland, it's a lot harder to bomb out to Yellowstone every weekend. You have to plan ahead, get permission, buy a flight, take vacation time. But there was another shift that took place as Daryl got some time and distance from the hunt. Because for years, in the news coverage, Daryl's arrest was the comparison story at the end of every article. The anecdote that offered some context. If someone activated search and rescue looking for the treasure, the article would mention how former police officer Daryl Siler had been hauled out of the backcountry twice in two weeks. If Forrest Fenn did an interview promoting the treasure hunt... Daryl would be mentioned at the end to establish that there was a dark side to this thing, that people did take it too far. But as other hunters took it even farther and suffered worse consequences, Daryl's name stopped showing up. He became just another risk-tolerant treasure hunter, a face in the crowd. And the treasure hunt let him go, gave him back his comfortable life, his six-figure income. The problem was... None of this was ever about the money.
2: You know, when I got the money, it wasn't like, oh, my God, this, you know, it was nice. Um, I still spent it stupidly. You know, I'd buy everybody lunch or, you know, I'd take care of this or that. And I didn't care about it. Um, But I still was a failure. I still was a failure to my friends. I still was a failure to my family. Um, The magazine article came out and I felt like Now the world knows I'm a failure. Um, so um, even though I was comfortable, I still had to dealt with waking
0: up um, a failure. When you lose everything and get it back, you're supposed to learn something. Maybe you realize that the things you have are more precious than that thing you're looking for. But this just isn't a story about anyone learning their lesson.
2: If I don't find this, um, how am I going to live? How am I going to be happy? I couldn't see myself not finding it. I couldn't see myself past or accepting somebody else beat me to it. I, mean, I, I, I refused to even try to consider that. It had to be me. It had to be me no matter what.
0: Mist Fortune is an Apple original podcast produced by High Five Content in association with Thirty Minutes West and Outside Magazine. The show was written and hosted by me, Peter Frickrate, with writing, editing, composing, and sound design by Robbie Carver. Story editing by Michael May. Additional editing by Alex Ward and Tiera Darnell. Additional production by Anne Bailey. Fact checking by Matt Giles. Final mix by Stephen Cray. Michael Derman is our line producer. Accounting by Matt Rock. Additional consulting from Gene McHale Waite. The executive producer for High Five content is Andrew Jacobs. Executive producers for 30 Minutes West are Peter Frickright and Robbie Carver. Thanks to Outside's editor in chief, Chris Kyes, and Michael Roberts, director of audio. Legal services provided by Chris Keen and Diana Palacios. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, leave us a review. We'll be back next week.